welcome back to Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Calmers, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. If you listened to last week's episode, I, I mentioned that I'm kind of rethinking the premise of the show and, and kind of just working out. I guess the way I've been describing it is that Cognitive Evolution was premised on sort of who I was and how I wanted to grow at the beginning of graduate school. And now I'm at the end of my PhD. I feel like I've grown in that direction to the degree that, you know, like I I set out to do. And now I need something that can grow with me in my next phase. And uh, yeah, so I guess, um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm considering moving away from the doing the, the stories or sort of finishing out that, uh, you know, that, that project, especially now that I'm coming up on 100 episodes there, and transitioning into something that digs in a little bit more to the subject matter itself, which if you've been listening to this show, you, you know that I tend not to really go in depth on, on evaluating theories and ideas and that sort of stuff, but really just stick to the, the personal stuff. And so that's kind of the thing that I'm, you know, contemplating what that what I want that to look like in this show. And, you know, like to some degree, it's, it's hard to change that just because of, you know, you got inertia. Like say, I, like I am used to doing the things that I do for this show now, both in terms of like how I get people on there, what I tell them the interview is going to be like. And then of course, how I conduct the interview and everything, how I start it, the kind of things that I expect to talk about. And, uh, yeah, so I, I am just sort of building towards, rethinking what that looks like and and how I want the show to play out in my development as, you know, a writer and a podcaster or whatever I'm going to be. And yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get some, some purchase on that. So, um, but, uh, this is a cool episode. Um, my guest for this week is Tom Pettigrew. He is, uh, I mean, he's, he's just, uh, he's a, he's a big social psychologist. He's, he's one of the, you know, in that pantheon of people, uh, who's really at the top level there in terms of influence and impact on the field. And it was a huge honor to have him on the show. So, uh, I will note that there was a slight issue with the audio and I don't have the nice crisp version of my, um, audio. I just have the backup version. Uh, thankfully I have the backup version as opposed to just, you know, fucking nothing. But, uh, if, if there, if the audio sounds slightly off, that's, that's the reason there. But yeah, it was really cool to hear Tom's arc through his career. He was mentored by none other than Gordon Alpert, who I am a huge fan of. And I've written extensively about his biography and everything like that. A lot of that actually drew on some of Tom's biographical notes, of Gordon and everything like that. But um, yeah, Tom also has developed some really cool theories. Chief among them is intergroup contact theory, which is usually attributed to Gordon Alpert. But as we talk about, actually it was really Alpert's kind of adaptation of, of Tom's ideas and just sort of, uh, you know, really they originated with Tom. But that's basically the idea that the, the most effective, it's the hypothesis which has been tested in in many, at this point, thousands of psychology experiments. The hypothesis that the best way to get members from different social groups to like one another, to evaluate one another favorably, to get along, is simply by giving them the opportunity to make contact with one another. And there are these, you know, particular... Um, parameters that you want to have in place. A big one that Tom introduced was the idea that you need someone who is a friend, a long-term friend in that other group. But so we get into all of that. We get into his more research, his, his more recent ideas about what what he calls deprovincialization. Basically, how do you make people think beyond the kind of world that they were born into and experience and and conceptualize how other people experience the world in a way that might be very different from their own. And we talk about how he was expelled from junior high for standing up to a racist teacher, the formative experiences that sparked his insights into intergroup contact. Talk a lot about Gordon Alpert. Uh, We talk about his extended trip to apartheid South Africa. Um, And uh, yeah, and how his thinking about all this stuff in in particular intergroup contact has changed over the years and, and what he thinks social psychologists can do to kind of help spur on larger scale political and psycho- uh, societal change. So it was a fun conversation. Like I said, it was a huge honor to have such a big figure in the field 
on the show. And uh, I look forward to sharing it with everyone here. So without any further ado, here is Tom Pettigrew. Tom, where did, where did you grow up? I grew up in Richmond, Virginia, born in 31, 1931. So I saw racism at its full-blown worst uh, through the 30s and 40s. And uh, that had a big Im- impact on me. And what did your parents do? What was your sort of family situation like? Uh, my mother and grandmother who helped raise me were both Scottish immigrants to the United States. Uh, my grandmother never became a citizen. She, she was a fiery Scottish nationalist. Um, and uh, my father was a Scottish American too, but but he was fourth generation American. Um, but, uh, but he grew up in the mountains of Virginia and so where there were no black Americans. So he didn't have the usual racist views of the South. And of course, my my immigrant uh, mother and grandmother didn't have me there. So I was fortunate to grow up in a family that was quite atypical for, for Virginia at that time. And uh, speaking of fiery Scottish ancestors, I understand that you were at least temporarily expelled from junior high. Uh, yes. Uh, the, there was a terrible racist teacher who, who um, made racist remarks against black Americans almost every day and even thought Hitler had the right idea for Jews uh, stood up in it was seventh grade uh, history class and called her a bigot, and I was uh, removed from school, um, thrown out for the day. But within within forty five minutes of that, both my mother and grandmother uh, appeared at the school and in the principal's office. <laughs> they really let him have it. Uh, and uh, I always felt sorry for the principal. He didn't really agree with the teacher, but he got the full abuse of my family. Uh, I was readmitted to school the next day. But it had a big impression on me. Uh, and uh, I suppose uh, my, my family were something of a model for me. I'm kind of curious about that incident. What did your friends, what did your peers say to you? Where did anyone comment on it? Did people like, you know, were they on your side? What, how did your peers react to that? It's an interesting question. Uh, for the most part, quite positively. She wasn't a popular teacher on other grounds too, but actually the class was about one third Jewish. And she had made this, these remarks about Hitler, for God's sake. Um, so uh, what happened, and my closest friends all agreed with me, they they just didn't have uh, parents who supported them as well as I had. But they, um, what happened was the next year, I ran for president of the junior high, and they, the teachers, most all of them, almost all of them female, would always pick out a bright young girl to be the president. And they did it by the simple means of having two boys run against uh, one girl. And uh, there was almost complete sex voting, uh, girls for the girls and boys for the boys. So if you split the boys vote, the girl would always win. So they did that again with me. Uh, But in this case, uh, the uh, Jewish girls voted for me on the basis of that incident, I think, as much as anything. And uh, and I won, so that gave me my first introduction into into intergroup politics. I understand that you've dedicated several of your books to uh, a woman named Mildred Adam. Uh, can you say a bit about who she was and, and how she influenced your your life and, and your thinking? Yeah, she was a young a black woman who came to work for my parents as a domestic. Um, she had had only six grades of uh, segregated education, but she was very, very bright. That taught me the difference between 
the um, how intelligent you are and how much school you had. She um, she slowly introduced me into what it was like to be black in Richmond in the 1930s, and uh, particularly when she was doing the wash on Wednesday afternoons, I would go for my weekly seminar, and slowly and surely, but very unthreateningly, she uh, described what it was like in her life, and uh, that um, that really had a, a big influence on me. And then uh, later, I realized that even though she was being quite direct, um, she was softening it for my young ears. We um, uh, we tried to. Uh, she was a big Humphrey Bogart fan, and um, but there were black theaters and white theaters, and the black theaters in Richmond in those days got got movies almost two years behind when they came out first. So uh, the um, Maltese Falcon came out and uh, in, uh, I think it was 1940, 41. And uh, she, of course, really wanted to see it as a Bogart fan. And so uh, she dressed up in what was clearly um, as domestic clothes, all white, and took the little white 10-year-old boy, me, to the movies at Lowe's Theater, I remember, in downtown Richmond. And we were rejected completely, almost violently, uh, as if Mildred Adams could upset anything. And uh, they, uh, they even threatened to call the police. This had an enormous effect on me, um, that somebody could, some people would do this to Mildred Adams. So events like that, plus her educating me, uh, by the time I was 11 or 12, all the usual white excuses for racism or ignoring it uh, were no longer uh, available to me. So uh, from then on, it was pretty clear what I thought of race relations, but I didn't think it was going to affect my career in any way. My my Scottish family assumed that I would be an engineer in the traditions of Scotland. And uh, my father was an engineer and a successful one, and he enjoyed his work. So uh, I was planning to follow his path. The trouble was um, I uh, wasn't very good at it. I couldn't draw. I was trying to be an architectural engineer. And this was before microcomputers and uh, uh, I I didn't do very well. I passed all my subjects, but I got the lowest grades I ever got in my life at Virginia Tech, which was his alma mater, and I had gone to it. And so I switched to the University of Virginia. I didn't even know what psychology was, to be truthful, but um, fortunately, um, uh, I went to take a test it's still around, actually, strong vocational uh, test. And you took a little pin, and they gave you opposites. Like, I like to draw pictures. I like to read books. You pick one or the other. And with a little pin, you stuck it in for your, your alternative. And uh, I took it. I don't remember what I did in it. I'm sure I came out low in engineering. <laughs> but uh, they, I, I was enthralled by the test itself. So I asked the administrator, who makes these tests? And he said, psychologists. And uh, that did it right then. Uh, we, I was switching to University of Virginia and the university was asking me what I was going to major in. So I wrote back psychology, which was kind of a falling into it uh, rather than picking it out as such. But, uh, and, but the department was experimental psych a very good experimental psych department, but um, nevertheless, they didn't think much of a social psych. They taught only one course in it, um, they, uh, but it was well taught. And I took it in, here was a course that both, all the textbooks in for the course involved, had things in it about race relations. And I knew that minute that that was my field. I was gonna be a social psychologist. Okay, so how did you get from your 
So you, you so you started off with an under basic understanding of what social psychology was or could be. How did you get from Virginia Tech then to the Department of Social Relations at Harvard? Oh, from Virginia Tech, I went to Virginia, University of Virginia, um, after that one <laughs> disastrous year. And after three years at the University of Virginia, uh, I got a scholarship to go to, 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 go to Harvard. The, um, one of the professors at the UVA, University of Virginia, knew that Oldport was writing uh, the, the later became The Nature of Prejudice. I don't know how he knew that, but he did. And he knew my intense interest in race relations. So he suggested to me that I, I apply to, uh, to Harvard, uh, social relations, which combines sociology, anthropology, and, and uh, social psychology. And so I did. But I was very naive. I wrote in my, in my application um, that if I, I wanted to work with Allport, in race relations, and if I couldn't do that, I didn't want to. Come, I wasn't interested in coming to Harvard, which was incredibly uh, pretentious on my part. But I didn't realize that I was pretty naive about it. Oldport, fortunately, was headed the admissions committee, and it, so it, it, he didn't take offense, obviously. And uh, I, um, I was admitted to Harvard. He was a magnificent uh, director. Um, uh, for your thesis, every graduate student should have someone like him. Um, and uh, but there, I also could take sociology with Parsons and uh, uh, talk at Parsons. I taught with later, and particularly with Sam Stauffer, the uh, sociological social psychologist, who taught me uh, uh, survey work, and that's why my work. It's always been sort of trying to combine the social psychologists, psychologies of psychology and sociology. For me, they both are necessary and the same, same concern of multi-level uh, approaches to problems. Do you remember the first time you met Gordon Albert? Do you, uh, what was your first impression of him? Well, the time I met him in person, I remember it very vividly it was in Washington, D.C. The Quakers were had a thing about bringing social scientists in to talk to members of Congress and their staffs, mainly, um, hoping to uh, <laughs> open up our otherwise uh, legislature full of lawyers, still is. Um, and uh, Oprah was invited to come to this session. And he had me come. At that time, I was teaching just for one year at the University of North Carolina after my degree before going back to Harvard to teach. And also, he, Herb Kelman uh, was also invited to the thing. And he introduced us because we were both becoming new assistant professors of psychology in the Harvard Department of Social Relations uh, that fall. And that was beginning of my close association with uh, Herb, with Herb Kelman, who had many similar interests to me that I had. And he's quite ill right now, as a matter of fact. Um, but uh, I met Allport and, you know, I liked him immediately. But he found me something of a puzzle, I think. I don't think he was prepared to meet a Southern liberal, a white liberal. I don't think he knew they existed, to tell you the truth. So once he slipped at a party of the department, and he had, he had two other new PhD students, uh, one an Australian and one an Indian. And so people came up, and he, would, he slipped once and said, I want you to meet my three foreign students. I mean my two foreign students. He had me almost in a category of foreign, I think, because... Um, he, he didn't know much about the South and, and Kirillis, probably. Um, but that was my first meeting with him, and uh, we became quite close. Oport was a Scottish-American himself, and I always thought that had something to do with the fact that our, our values were almost identical. Can you say more about what 
his mentorship style was like. Um, I, I've seen in one of your notes on him that uh, his classic editing advice when he would be reading over a manuscript you'd given him was he would scrawl in the margins of the, um, of, of the paragraph recast. And whenever you saw recast, you know, like, okay, I need to, <laughs> I need to revisit this section. So can you, yeah, tell, tell, tell me what it, more about his approach to mentorship and, and what exactly he could bring out of a student. Well, at the time he was certainly one of the best writers in, in, in psychology. And uh, he, uh, he took it upon himself to, he was actually a shy man and, uh, and very circumspect, but uh, he believed in his duty to teach students to his doctoral students, how to write and make it clear and precise. So he would edit every thing, line you wrote. And the amazing thing is he kept doing this for people. Jerry Bruner, who was a, a, a PhD of all ports before my time, uh, once told me that Allport was still editing his writings uh, 10 years after he got his doctorate. And he did the same for me. Um, and it must have taken a lot of time to do this, but uh, it improved my writing. Actually, more than improved it, it made it possible for me to write as clear uh, English. I could never do it as well as he would. The thing he used to get me was he, he would take a word that I had in my manuscript, he would scratch it out and write another word, and that was the precise word that I meant. <laughs> I always wondered, how did he know exactly what I meant and found the right word to express it? So he was a terrific editor. And of course, he was the editor of the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology for uh, many, many years, I think like th almost three decades. What was he like on a, a personal level? You mentioned he was shy. I know, um, gosh, what did he have? Uh, his his family second home was in, in Maine, was it, or something like that? Did you know him outside of the outside of the the classroom, outside of the lab? Oh yeah, uh, I got to know him quite well, particularly because after I got my doctorate, or just as I was getting it, um, he went to South Africa. University of Natal, and uh, took me with him. Got a, got me a little fellowship from a foundation, and um, and so in South Africa, particularly, we got to know each other even more closely. Uh, he, um, uh, he he was he was cautious. He he wasn't expansive, um, but he. Uh, well, it's hard to describe him. He was very easy to get along with because he was uh, direct, yet shy, uh, and um, and I guess our values so were so close that we we never had an argument over anything. I guess the one disagreement we had, a running disagreement, was of course I was much more concerned with norms and. Um, uh, the cultural and limitations that uh, I thought the psychological work uh, had and didn't take it, what I'm still pushing at three three levels of uh, analysis. He uh, he was very much at the uh, individual analysis level, and I w once had a uh, I did a study with a graduate student, and we. We were very proud of it because we took three variables from the census and was able to predict the order in which school desegregation came to counties throughout the South. I was very proud of this, so I took it to, to Gordon, and he he looked it over, and he was singularly unimpressed. He said, oh, but what? I don't understand. He said, because uh, there are more white women in the labor force, because it's more prosperous, uh, uh, you get the desegregation. He said, what about the wise judge, the brave mayor, who risked their careers to bring about racial change? So for him, causation had to be really from 
individuals. And a causation emanating from, from a larger context was just not his bag. <laughs> and that was our disagreement. But in a way, as I've written lately, um, I think I won that, uh, that argument. It wasn't much of an argument, but it was a difference. Um, when we went to South Africa there, there was, there was no way to understand South Africa without understanding its history, its cultural and, uh, uh, and structural aspects. And he began to get that. He, he got friendly with an Afrikaner. We were at the University of Natal, and there was an Afrikaner professor of Afrikaans, the language. And um, he was a, a pleasant, intelligent man, and Oport rather liked him. And one day at lunch, the man burst out with the worst racism you could believe. And um, Gordon was uh, really upset and uh, came to me right afterwards and said, how can a man as intelligent, educated as that man uh, be such a racist? And I said, it's easy, Gordon. I grew up with those people all my life, uh, my early life anyway. and." Uh, he did put a thing in the second edition of uh, of, of uh, Nature of Prejudice that came out the paperback edition. He put in a little note that if he was to redo the book, he would stress conformity and norms more than he had previously. So um, uh, that was maybe, I'm sure, but the only disagreement we ever had, and it was a disagreement about about structural factors. I'm inclined to agree with you that you won in the long term that particular debate, if you want to call it that. And uh, I've got this copy here of letters from Jenny. I don't know if you can see that. Yeah, letters from Jenny. Um, Gordon Alport's little, little known later in his career book, where he basically took these letters, which he'd used as teaching material for a long period of time. Um, by this woman, woman, I believe her name was Jenny Masterson. And he tried to basically say, well, okay, so I've been studying personality in the lab for, you know, all these years and, you know, this kind of stuff. How do I make sense of an individual life and the, the personality and that sort of stuff? And I, my feeling when reading this book and Gordon Alpert's analysis is that he sensed that he was kind of inadequate for the job in using just psychological tools. And ultimately, I think the reason is what you're talking about. He didn't have enough of a sympathy for the larger cultural context in which a person exists. He didn't talk anything about, you know, for example, you've, you've mentioned your Scottish heritage as a key, you know, point in sort of interpreting actions and, and perspectives, that sort of stuff in your own life. He doesn't mention anything about her, her background and that sort of stuff. And so, yeah, I think that was one of the things that Alport of everything that was so fantastic and, and wonderful about his work tended to overlook and is something that we've come to terms a lot more with in social psychology um, in the intervening period. Well, I would agree with you. And you, you raise an interesting point. He he produced that book after the South African experience notice. So um, uh, he, he'd already, uh, had already softened him up a little maybe on that. But that book has an interesting history in that uh, he, uh, his wife um, was a clinical psychologist and she didn't um, uh, practice late in later in life, but she she was the one who was particularly interested in Jenny, and she kept pressing him to write that book. He was actually reticent about producing it. Even you picked up the fact that he was a little unsure in the thing that pretty insightful of you because he was, I think, um, not just because of the South African experience, but also um, his wife as a clinician particularly was pressing him on a, on the clinical side of, of the of the analysis but uh, do you remember the old year that came out 1965 we were in south africa in um, 56 so that was 
nine years later. That, yeah, that's that's how I remember. Yeah, I, I think part of it is that he understood intellectually that it was the logical apotheosis of his work, that if he really understood the things he was interested in, he'd be able to apply them to an individual life. Uh, but that's, you know, once he'd done it, he's like, you know what, this isn't, this isn't as good as I would, I would want it to be. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to see that play out in a mind as brilliant as Alport, that even someone like that can only get a piece of the puzzle and everything like that. So I find that a really interesting book. That was subtle of you to pick that up. I don't think many people have actually seen it. Um, I uh, I had nothing to do with that book. Of course, that wasn't my side of it, that I work with him on. Um, I just remember that that his wife had a big influence on it. In fact, I'm sure it was his wife who got him to publish it um, because she thought it was such an interesting case uh, as a clinician. There's one kind of last thing in this this area of things I want to ask you about, and that's the sort of intellectual climate of the Department of Social Relations. So you have this really fascinating place where so many of the greatest thinkers of 20th century social and behavioral science came together. And you were there a part of it with one of the main, you know, several of the main figures between Gordon Alpert, Sam Stouffer, uh, Talcott Parsons. So what, what was the intellectual climate like and what sort of stuck with you, um, you know, after you went to Santa Cruz? What, what, what kind of, yeah, what were your impressions of, of that place and then what was special about it? Yeah, I really missed it when Harvard closed it down. Um, the uh, over the objections of most of us in the department. Um, it, well, it it didn't. The, the idea of the department was basically Parsons, and Parsons was about to leave Harvard because of problems uh, the, within the Department of Sociology, and as a means of keeping Parsons and keeping Allport, who was about to leave too. Uh, the administration of Harvard in 46-47 formed the Department of Social Relations. Uh, and uh, in, in doing that, the uh, psychology department, experimental psychology, broke off and was kept separate. And um, which suited uh, Gordon Fine. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, but it never came together quite like Parsons had hoped. Parsons saw it as a, again, I kind of think it's kind of multi-level approach with everybody contributing. Um, and a funny thing happened, not, not funny, maybe reasonable when you think about it in retrospect. It was um, the anthropologist uh, and the uh, personality psychologist formed a unit, uh, informal kind of unit, the social psychologists and the sociologists formed their own stuff. And that's why I work with Stouffer as well as Allport. Uh, and, uh, but I had very little, I just took, I think, one course in anthropological anthropology. Um, and, and, and almost nothing in personality psychology directly, but of course I was working with Allport, so there was plenty of, um, of personality psych from that and um, and the department got along well pretty well but by those that those two uh, units joined that way informally uh, and as long as Parsons was the chair which he was for years um, when he um, was no longer the chair uh, the department began to split up, mainly coming from the sociologists. Uh, they weren't happy because they they thought they didn't have as many positions as they would normally have if they had been an independent social department. So uh, particularly Alex Inkless was a man mainly arguing this, and he left and went to Stanford. Um, they, uh, but also the dean at the time, was very um, uh, uh, somehow he was an economist. I don't think he knew what social psych was, and uh, he once said we couldn't be much because none of us were had been elected to the Academy of Science of the United States. 
uh, we didn't realize was no social psychologists at that time were were in the academy. Later, that changed, but but he but I think he thought we were fairly irrelevant. So he helped them form uh, what became really a dominant psychology department. And uh, the, the amazing story uh, behind once once it ended ended social relations, the psychologists decided these experimental psychologists decided they would literally take almost all the positions that came due. And we had some really uh, brilliant young social psychologists, one after another, and uh, they were denied tenure. The experimentalists kept them from getting tenure, and they went to other universities and became famous. I won't say their names, but uh, all four of them uh, now among the most famous social psychologists in the in the world and uh, but they couldn't get tenure with the experimentalists and they experimentalists then took those jobs and hired experimental psychologists it was um, it was really something uh, uh, to behold and that's that was what was going on when I when I quit and I left in 1980 and came to University of California in Santa Cruz because I improved on the weather too. And Santa Cruz also uh, allowed me to take long stretches of leave to teach uh, in Amsterdam and uh, in Germany, in, in Europe, in other words, um, which I don't think Harvard would have done. I want to transition into talking a little bit more directly about your intergroup contact work which is the one of the main strands of research that you've been working on in your career. And um, you know, the basic idea, of course, being that one potential way to reduce prejudice, this sort of being the hypothesis, is simply to put people in contact with members of different groups. And um, in particular, uh, there's this famous four factors for you know positive intergroup contact equal status between groups common goals cooperation between groups and uh support from the authority or institution and what's sort of funny about these is that they are often attributed to gordon alpert um and his relevant chapter in uh the nature of prejudice but if you actually look at that chapter in the nature of prejudice he doesn't at any point say, okay, boom, here are the four, you know, uh, factors for, in, uh, for, you know, successful intergroup contact. Uh, I do think he kind of, you know, alludes to them at the end. There's like in the final paragraph, there's like, well, you know, the, if it were to work, we'd kind of need these uh, things. And he names approximately those four things, but not in, in the sort of like famous phrasing of them. But that's uh, all because uh, as far as I understand it, they're really, your four um, factors that you came up with, and he kind of appropriated slash, um, uh, you know, just they were attributed to him because he was kind of the, you know, the progenitor of a lot of this sort of stuff. So uh, is that is that how that all started? Well, he appropriated them. Uh, I think people hadn't read his chapter. <laughs> they read my review of of his work and and to, and just assume that it must be in the chapter um as i've described in, in my last book i just published uh contextual social psych uh the truth of the matter is uh i took my my specials exam with allport on contact because i, I really was interested in that and look at my own experience my contact with with Mildred Adams had uh, shaped my life, so my uh, scholarly life. So uh, naturally, I was inclined to uh, favor it. Um, the, um, but I found uh, reading that chapter, and you can read it today, it was kind of hard to uh, make it a uh, It's discursive and uh, interesting and important, but hard to you know pin down. And here I was studying for the exam. So I conjured up those four conditions as a way of summarizing the chapter for the purpose of my special exam. 
and uh, he liked that, and I used it after that with his with his approval. But uh, there are problems with those four conditions, as I point out in my book. Um, the, the thing that's hard that you have to remember is that Oprah was writing in the early that book in the early fifties, and he was not sure at all that contact reduced prejudice, even though he had done a study with Kramer and. And there was growing research showing it might be true. He really still believed that uh, it wasn't necessary, that most contact was going to lead to problems. That was a dominant feeling in American social science at the time, which uh, incidentally was uh, politically motivated in part the maintenance of racial segregation in my native South. But um, the that's where the four conditions came from. It was to, so I could pass my specials exam. But um, the uh, uh, now in the meta-analysis of contact that I did with my student, Linda Trop, uh, they turn out not to be as necessary. They greatly facilitate the positive effects, but um, they are not absolutely necessary. You still get some positive effects even when they aren't aren't working. What in your understanding of intergroup contact has changed over the past, you know, 50 or so years? Well, uh, there's a new, relatively new issue just a year ago of Journal of Social Issues, which is really, I think, important in that it shows all the growth in the theory and the subtleties that have been introduced. Uh, and to be honest, uh, these literally over a thousand studies in contact have now gone in all kinds of directions and found things that would have never occurred to me, like uh, contact uh, through computers or um, the uh, contact with some friend of your in-group who has a friend of the out group and so forth. All that was not in the mix in the 1950s with the early development of the theory. And I've been very uh, pleased and excited to see the field grow as it's grown. Uh, I've worked also hard in the field of relative deprivation theory, and it hasn't grown like that. Uh, 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 So I was a bit surprised, but very pleased to see contact um, develop with all sorts of uh, mediators, moderators. Um, the theory is really becoming quite complex now. And that uh, issue of the Journal of Social Issues is really, I think, uh, uh, a step forward in beginning to bring it together what all these new, new advances uh, add up to. Yeah, you're right. I, I've looked through some of the work and that's in that issue. Very interesting stuff. And it's it's almost a new wave of of, of research in, in this. Yeah, I, I think uh, I forget her name now, who was in Australia. She talks about the three periods of and that I would agree with. With um, my meta-analysis with Crop being sort of the ending of the initial. Uh, hundreds of studies um, showing that it does work under a wide range of conditions. And then since then, we published that meta-analysis in 2006. We've had this uh, outburst in all directions and all kinds of different forms of, uh, um, of, of contact, even distant contact. But what really impresses me is that it's now been found by my latest count. I just counted there last week. And the contact uh, working in 50-some countries now. So while social psychology for a long time was a field uh, limited to, uh, to UK, Europe, uh, US, it's now a worldwide science. And I think that's very important. And you get a theory like contact theory and you find the same principles working country after country 
um, and in with incredibly different cultures. So obviously we're getting to something, I think, uh, quite fundamental. This is a bit of a tangential question, but you know you've mentioned your trips to South Africa and you know your your extended periods in Netherlands. What effect do you think travel has from an intergroup contact perspective on prejudice? Does the ability to go and see new places in those kind of trips, whether they're, you know, extended stays or, you know, shorter, shorter stints. What do you think? Yeah. What do you think think work there? Extended stays is what you need. Uh, Travel, you know, uh, it must be Paris. It's Thursday. I don't think it helps um, much at all. Um, But uh, I don't know any data that, that suggests it does. But we now have growing data that uh, extended stays, and certainly my stays, uh, I've had considerable time I've gone and uh, in Scotland, in Netherlands, Germany, um, Italy, uh, Portugal, Spain, <laughs> and particularly South Africa. And um, every one of those extended visits really made uh, a big effect on me and led me to develop the concept of deprovincialization. And I've got a paper coming out right now on it, along with a Dutch and uh, Italian colleague, um, colleagues. They, uh, and they, they, they've done really nice surveys, both in Netherlands, Germany, and Italy, showing uh, deprovincialization actually predicts in uh, tolerance or lack of prejudice, in a, in addition to our usual variables of urbanism and social distance orientation. And we can show that it relates to contact in that the new papers coming out in group processes, processes and social and social relations uh, and social issues. And we show that even if you control for the major ones, Tartarianism, this STO, social dominance orientation and relative deprivation, the big three predictors, it predicts uh, in addition to those. It's related to all those, but it has independent prediction and and we can show that it is, in fact, uh, a different variable. So uh, you're right. The, uh, not so much just travel, but living in another culture and we find it has two two parts to it. And I wrote, I started writing on this while I was in Germany. Uh, and uh, I, I was myself being deprovincialized. So I was kind of aware of what was going on in myself. Uh, that is, you, you get an awareness that, uh, that other cultures seem to do very well doing a lot of things different from your culture. Yet it things work well, maybe even better um, than in yours. And the other part is you become more, and, and now that my colleagues have shown how these two correlate in the 70s, the scales, separate scales. For it. The other is that you get a new view of your own culture, which doesn't mean you become you know, more negative to your own culture, but it does mean you look at it at a distance and in greater perspective. Um, and I had a wonderful Dutch graduate student and uh, I was always asking her you know, when I was living for three years in, in, in Amsterdam and in Leiden, um, how, well, why do you do it that way? And she'd look at me strangely and say, how else would you do it? Um, they um, and it, she had a point that it was different than the way in the U.S., but it was working great in the Netherlands. Um, I uh, I think that that sort of deprovincializes you and starts opening you up not just to different types of people and and trends, but opening up to different cultural things. Uh, I. Um, and that has a big effect, I think, in eroding prejudice. So that's my particular emphasis right now. 
and I've written three or four papers on it, but it's this new one coming out um, with data from Germany, Netherlands, and Italy that I'm particularly pleased by. So one of the things that we have not yet really touched on in your own story is how your insights from your research in social psychology were tied up in larger national events. Uh, for example, you know, kind of when your first, as I understand it, kind of like major research project was going on right at the time of Brown v. Board of Education in the 1954, and also how a lot of policy decisions later on were um, you were at least part of a conversation that was sort of ongoing and all that. Can you say a little bit about what that looked like throughout your career, the sort of intersection of, of the, you know, the research insights with what was actually happening in the larger political and, and uh, the social world? Yeah, in the 60s and 70s, I really devoted enormous amount of attention to school desegregation. I was fighting for it. Uh, and uh, writing publicly in, in popular things as well as journals, testifying before Congress three times. I was a um, consultant to three senators, one even a Republican, but he was a black Republican, so he didn't count uh, in the usual way. Um, and uh, I, I counted up the other day over 100 popular speeches, you know, to school board, advising school boards, all kinds of things. Um, uh, arguing for school desegregation, not necessarily all that successful. The, um, the racist tide against it, particularly as Republicans became the, became the majority of the Supreme Court, uh, America has been moving away from desegregation. And uh, I just published a paper uh, in uh, the um, uh, Harvard Journal, Du uh, Bois Review, showing that desegregation, to the extent we did have it in the schools, has been an enormous success in the later lives of the Black Americans who were able to participate in it. Uh, but um, that's not a general view in the United States yet. And uh, the opposition to School desegregation is um, is uh, still enormous, and you get it right present in in what's called critical race theory, uh, which was developed for the law, has nothing to do with with individual data. It's a structural variable that lawyers developed, uh, and yet the Republican Party has turned it into a conspiracy of making white children hate their own race and and all of this, all of which is absolute nonsense. But um, it's very um, it's very prevalent right now in American politics. The Virginia governor in my home state just got elected basically arguing this, and they're teaching your child to hate, hate white people, and so your white child or hate white people. Um, which the theory has nothing, <laughs> nothing to say on actually at all. Um, so the fight continues. I'm not sure. Um, no, I don't think I'll ever see it. I have to see it really completely won, but eventually it'll have to be won if America is ever to overcome its racist structure. Do you, do you think that social psychology has a role to play in that? Um, obviously, you participated in a lot of these these conversations. And I guess as someone who's sort of coming up in the, the field now, it feels often like we're, we're so far removed from the actuality of political decisions and societal change, all sort of stuff. So do you, do you see a role for social psychology in, you know, exacting the kind of change that you, that you have in mind here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, definite central role. The, um, and I think uh, SPICI, uh, Society for Psychological Study of Social Issues, and its many journals, uh, give you an example of uh, pounding on this. Uh, uh, though uh, uh, SPICI's attention to race has declined a little as the uh, percentage of uh, 
women climbed in uh, in social psych. Now, I don't know, in the United States anyway, women are a little over 70% of all social psychologists. And they are understandably interested in gender discrimination, which you have to admit the field basically ignored until the 80s and until they brought it in um, in an important way. Um, my only concern now is that it not absolutely uh, shut out attentions to racism, but it hasn't as yet. Uh, so I think uh, in some ways, I think social psych is now better situated to influence social policy than it's ever been, in part because I think we're more sophisticated about it. And now I'm talking about the U.S. Um, in outside uh, of the United States, I think it varies by where you are. Um, if it's a small, very small field, um, still, I don't think it has much influence on on uh, social decisions, policy decisions. But let's take Germany for example. German social psychology, particularly as influenced by my close colleague, Ulrich Wagner. Um, he's, he's led time after time uh, social psychologists to uh, issue public um, statements, sent them to the uh, head of government, sent them to uh, everybody in the Reichstag, um, uh, and he gets a lot of publicity out of them, uh, arguing for mainly around the issue of immig Germany's immigration, <clears throat> uh, rather massive immigration. They took more uh, immigrants than anyone, any other country. <clears throat> Sweden next, I guess, for percentage. And uh, arguing not to let them form big uh, clusters of ghettos, immigrant ghettos, arguing for various ways of increasing contact in positive situations. Um, I've been very impressed. Uh, I, I don't know the German politics that well. I don't read German very well. Uh, but from what I gather, Uli sends me stuff all the time and I get my computer to translate it for me. Um, they, it does seem to be having an effect on uh, on the German discussion anyway, uh, apart from opinions. Um, so I, I think, yeah, no, I think our role is even more important than ever, particularly as we become a bit more sophisticated in how to, one, develop it, and two, then uh, communicate it to the general public. Now we've talked a lot about your accomplishments and the things that you've participated in and everything. I'm curious if in retrospect, um, if you could pick just one habit or sort of inclination or something like that of yours, what do you think has most contributed to the productivity and success you've experienced throughout your career? That's a hard one, actually. I don't know. Uh, <clears throat> Well, for me, the luckiest thing was discovering social psychology, which was a real match for my values and, and for my talents, which talents that did not include engineering, obviously. Um, so uh, that was uh, very important to me. And then, then the, the, the advantages that I got both at the University of Virginia and then at Harvard were uh, <clears throat> really... Uh, really helpful, uh, absolutely necessary for my uh, development. But then uh, I have, I, I just so love the field that for me, I recently wrote the happiest thing for me is to be sitting in front of a computer, either writing or analyzing survey data. Uh, to some extent, all of my public things, uh, speeches and public writing and congressional hearings and all that. Uh, I was be beginning to be called a public intellectual. And to be truthful, I was, I'm very uncomfortable in that role. 
that um, for one thing, it's time-consuming. It's uh, hot in the kitchen. Uh, uh, I, I learned how the press can turn things around, uh, distort uh, issues. Uh, it, it's it's not easy. And yet I think social psychologists are obligated to do some of it at least and to tell what we know rather than wait for Godot, as this phrase has it. Um, but it's it's difficult. It's so, well, for instance, I've had a lot of been involved in court cases and legal logic is just completely different than scientific logic. <laughs> it, it's unbelievable, at least American legal logic, but I think British legal logic is very similar. Um, so it's not easy to do it, but I hope social psychologists will not um, will not back away from it, even because it's difficult. Good example in the literature is Susan Fisk, now retiring at Princeton. She participated in a case of gender discrimination, and it, um, she was so effective using completely social psychological arguments and data that the Supreme Court, uh, in its ruling um, uh, on discrimination, cited her at length. So uh, with this court, maybe you couldn't get away with that anymore. But um, it, it was a brilliant example, and I discuss it in my book, of how social side can, in fact, uh, influence um, social policy at the highest level. Yeah, Susan Fisk, incredible individual. Is there any advice that you've commonly given to your students throughout the years, um, advice that you think is generalizable to anyone trying to get into social psychology? My graduate students are, I've been very lucky because I've had terrific graduate students um, who uh, ed educated me at least as much as I did for them. Um, I'd walk into my office at uh, Harvard, and uh, there would be books open on my desk uh, where they were telling me to read this. Otherwise, you won't understand what I'm doing. Uh, I like that. Uh, they And uh, I always treated them as, as junior colleagues, um, and they have made major contributions to all the theories that I really care about. But when, whether I had singular advice for them, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I, I guess I did it more by example than I did any uh, uh, verbal advice. I worried about discrimination against them if they were black graduate students or if they were female graduate students and worried about the white males too much. <clears throat> um, earlier, I think it's less true now that uh, social sex becomes so dominantly female but in America anyway but uh, the uh, I would go and give when they would get the job at say Penn State and I would go just before their tenure um, decision was up I'd go and give a colloquium at, and make it very clear what my work had been with the student in hoping to help the tenure decision so uh, uh, I worried about them, and I guess I gave them an example, but I'm not sure I had any sage advice that I could give them. And then final question here. Uh, what are three books that have most impacted your way of thinking or have stuck with you uh, throughout your, your career in life? Well, they were all early books that shaped me early. Uh, the main one, Gunnar Myrdal's American Dilemma which described uh, the South I knew as a child uh, at, quite accurately. It's a great book. Um, the, uh, I, got, I read it in high school, actually all 1,500 pages of it, um, because my local newspapers, racist newspapers in Richmond at that time, were slamming Myrdal almost every day because he was pro-integration and they hated the book. And they kept calling him the socialist Swede. So I figure if the racist newspapers hated this guy that much, he must be a great man. So I went and wrote the book, read the book. 
and the wonderful thing is I got to know him well. 25 years later, we taught a course together at the University of California. Um, and he he didn't disappoint me. He, he, he was a wonderful human being with an incredible, sweetest sense of humor that kept me in stitches most of the time. Uh, that book certainly shaped me early and and is where my sociological side comes from. Uh, the second book, um, is, of course, Adorno's uh, et al. American, um, on uh, authoritarian personality. And I've been studying that ever since. I'm thinking of writing a, a history of the authoritarian personality as my next book. Um, they, um, I learned it in the first social psych course I took. It uh, it didn't ring with me like uh, Myrdal's book did, because it was basically saying that the enormous Southern racism that I uh, witnessed was due to this person authoritarian personality. But I knew I knew all kinds of racists in the South who didn't have that personality type at all. So that's what got me into thinking of conformity and and the importance of norms and structure. Uh, nevertheless, the book had a big influence on me. I've used the authoritarianism scales in virtually every study of prejudice I've ever done for the last 70 years. And the third, of course, is Allport's Nature of Prejudice, which he published the first edition. I think most people haven't read the first edition. <clears throat> It's 40% longer than the paperback edition that came out four years later. But it, the original edition came out in 1954. I was a third year uh, graduate uh, doctoral student at Harvard at the time. I virtually memorized it. <laughs> but the two chapters, one on conformity and one on contact, obviously stuck with me the rest of my life. Yeah, fantastic, classic, classic choices. Uh, and I'd be very interested to see your remarks on the authoritarian personality. But uh, yeah, Tom, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Well, thank you. It's good to talk to you. That was my conversation with Tom Pettigrew. Like I said, big honor to have him on the show. Uh, he's, uh, he's still got it, man. But uh, yes, if you would like to support the show if you've enjoyed this episode and other ones, then uh, please consider subscribing to my Substack newsletter. You can find that codycommerce.substack.com. That's the best way to support the show. And if you liked this episode, then definitely check out my four-part biographical sketch of Gordon Alpert. I think we alluded to it uh, throughout the, the conversation. But, uh, but yeah, no, that's definitely one of the things that I'm most proud of. And, and like I said at the outset, I drew a lot on Tom's own biographical sort of notes on, on Gordon in, in composing that. So episode was produced and edited by Emily Chen. Thank you for listening. I'll be back here next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.